This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for July 20th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Forty-five years after a landmark Supreme Court ruling on abortion, Roe v. Wade is expected to be a dominant part of the debate over President Trump's nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. In that 1973 ruling, justices, by a 7-2 margin, ruled that a right to privacy under the 14th Amendment extended to a woman's decision to have an abortion. However, the right must be balanced against the state's interest in regulating abortions, protecting women's health, and potentially human life. All questions that Judge Brett Kavanaugh will face during his upcoming confirmation hearing. On C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast, we are joined by NYU law professor Melissa Murray. She walks us through the two primary cases dealing with abortion, Roe v. Wade in 1973 and 20 years later, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Professor Murray also offers her insights into related cases the high court could potentially take up in the future. But we begin with another contentious Supreme Court nominee debate in 1987. Senator Edward Kennedy questioning Reagan nominee Robert Bork about the right to privacy. Because it seems to me that uh, the issues of privacy have been carefully enshrined within the Constitution by court decisions over the period of the last 60 years. And they are rights which are enshrined in such a way and respected and valued so importantly that I would think uh, Americans would have serious questions, I certainly do, about uh, placing someone on the Supreme Court that is willing to find some kind of a rationale, or appears to find some rationale, not to respect it. Senator Kennedy, <clears throat> at the outset, let me say this. I have the greatest respect for the Bill of Rights. And I will enforce the Bill of Rights. I have enforced the Bill of Rights. What we were talking about here was a generalized, undefined right of privacy, which does not, is not in the Bill of Rights. Now, as I said this morning, as I said in my opening statement, a judge has to apply law. And the law comes from the text, the history, and the structure of the Constitution. There are important aspects of privacy in the Bill of Rights. This Congress has increased privacy in many ways by statute. As a society, we value it. But as a judge, I don't think I can tell the American people they may not have a law that in no way conflicts with the written and historical Constitution. That from 1987, the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing and the Senate rejecting the Robert Bork nomination. We'll have more on that in just a moment. But joining us on the phone is Professor Murray. And let me begin with the genesis of the Roe v. Wade case in the 1970s. Can you explain how and why it came about and ultimately making its way to the Supreme Court of the United States? Throughout the United States, um, for much of the country's history, or at least until from the 1800s forward, abortion was a criminal matter, which is to say that in most jurisdictions, it was a crime to get an abortion, and the doctor could be criminally prosecuted for providing an abortion, and um, most women recognized that abortions were legal for that matter. Um, in rare cases, you could get an abortion if the mother's health was threatened by the pregnancy, but again, that was a really rare exception. 
In Texas, where Norma Jean McCorvey, who was the woman who became Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade, was living, um, there was, again, this criminal abortion statute that had been in place since roughly the 1850s. She found herself pregnant. It was her third pregnancy. She'd had one daughter, Melissa, who had been adopted and raised by her mother. She had a second child um, who she gave up for adoption. And then when she found herself pregnant again, um, what she really wanted was to terminate the pregnancy, but immediately found that she was unable to do so in Texas because of this criminal prohibition. So she began investigating her options. Um, She went to an adoption lawyer, um, Mr. McCluskey, who counseled her about her options. But McCluskey happened to be friends with one Sarah Weddington, who was a recent graduate of the University of Texas Law School. And Weddington uh, had been casting about for a case that would challenge the Texas abortion statute. And the problem she was finding is that she didn't have a Dallas-based woman who was pregnant at the time who would provide Um, the means for actually challenging the case. So when McCluskey ran into Norma Jean McCorvey, he immediately told Sarah Weddington. Sarah Weddington contacted Norma Jean McCorvey, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, Interestingly, um, there are lots of questions about whether or not Sarah Weddington apprised Norma Jean McCorvey of the fact that this would be a test case, that it would be a very long and lengthy litigation. And in fact, she was not likely to get the abortion she sought because of the time it would take for her case to proceed through the federal court system. And if it was taken up by the Supreme Court, there would be an even longer wait time. And in fact, Norma Jean McCorvey actually delivered her child um, well before the Supreme Court decided this case. Another key player in this, Henry Wade. He was the DA in Dallas. Explain his role. Henry Wade was the prosecutor in Roe versus Wade, and it was his job to ensure that the laws were enforced. And when someone violated the laws in this case um, or failed to um, comply with the laws, he could prosecute them. But he was also, because he was the person charged with enforcing the laws, the person that could be sued on behalf of the state um, if the law was challenged constitutionally. So when Sarah Weddington filed her case on behalf of Norma Jean McCorvey, the appropriate state official against whom to bring suit was Henry Wade. This was a 7-2 to two decision. You've had a chance to read the opinion by Justice Blackman, and he, he wrote in part, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. And that seems to be one of the big unanswered questions moving ahead. Certainly. Um, Harry Blackman, who was chosen to write this opinion, had a long and storied career uh, with the court, but before joining the court, he had been the general counsel for the Mayo Clinic in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he lived before becoming a justice. And he very much understood sort of the physician's mind, was very attentive to the work of physicians. And in fact, it was physicians who had initially begun um, organizing on behalf of liberalizing abortion laws, um, physicians who felt that their ability to counsel their patients and to provide care were, was impaired by the fact of these criminal laws that prohibited abortion in all but the most extreme cases. And so he had that background in mind. Um, he also had a lot of medical science that he was thinking about um, in the summer when before he was to deliver this opinion and he was researching it. He spent a lot of time at the Mayo Clinic researching the history of abortion, um, the history of abortion prohibitions. And so I think for him, it was very much a sort of technical question. And when it came to this larger, more abstract and theoretical question about when life began, 
he was quite eager to avoid that very thorny question about which reasonable people could disagree. And so he notes that this is not something he will decide, nor is it something that he thinks he should decide in this instance. He's simply deciding this question as it's presented to him and leaving aside that larger issue um, that is much more subjective and subject to disagreement of when life actually begins. What is the 14th Amendment, and why did that come into play in the 7-2 to decision? The 14th Amendment is an amendment to the U.S. Constitution passed in the wake of the Civil War. It's actually celebrating its 150th anniversary this year. And the 14th Amendment um, basically provides for individual rights um, vis-a-vis the state. So the federal constitution is a document that limits the powers of the federal government and reserves certain powers to the states and um, barring the states to the people. The first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, are basically all about constraints on the federal government, but there's really little to constrain state governments. And the question of slavery um, sort of raises that as well. Like, to what extent do individuals have rights against the states? Um, When the 14th Amendment was passed in the wake of the Civil War, the purpose was, again, to sort of articulate um, this relationship between the individual and the states to identify a set of rights that were not just – rights that the individual held against the federal government, but also rights that they had against the states. And in the 14th Amendment, there is there are two clauses that are relevant. One that provides individuals with due process of law, that the government cannot take away life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And there's also a guarantee of equal protection of the laws. And all of these, of course, are um, to be enforced against state governments. We're talking with Melissa Murray, professor of law, and she is joining us from Oakland, California. The term that we so often hear, that Latin term, stare decisis, with the Roe case or any other Supreme Court decision, explain. So stare decisis is a Latin term that basically means let the decision stand. And it's a bedrock of the Anglo-American legal system, which is precedent-oriented, which is to say that if there is a controlling precedent, the court is obliged to follow it. Now, It may be the case that courts can distinguish on the facts of certain cases whether or not a precedent should apply in full or in part or whether it should be tweaked in certain respects. And in Roe versus Wade, um, there was no specific legal precedent um, dealing with the question of criminal abortion laws. There was, however, a more recent precedent, Griswold versus Connecticut, which had been decided in 1965. And this is a case that concerned Um, a right to use contraception. The state of Connecticut had a ban on contraception that had been in place since the 1870s, and it was challenged by um, Estelle Griswold and Lee Buxton, who ran the Planned Parenthood birth control clinic in New Haven, Connecticut. And they challenged this Connecticut law all the way to the Supreme Court. And there, Justice Douglas, um, in a very famous opinion, noted that um, The rights actually enumerated in the Constitution are rights, but they're not exhaustive rights, and that there might actually be other rights that are constitutionally protected that lie in the interstices of various constitutional guarantees. And among those interstitial or penumbral rights um, include the right to privacy, and the right to privacy is basically a right that provides the individual with a space of seclusion for intimate matters against the government. So, Here in Griswold, the court basically said that the government had no business 
criminalizing the use of contraception insofar as it concerned um, married couples. And then later in a case decided just before Roe versus Wade, Eisenstadt versus Baird, the court extended the Griswold ruling to include unmarried people. And so in 1973, when Roe versus Wade comes down the pike, the relevant precedent, it seems, is this question of whether or not the right to privacy, which has already sort of been attached to this question of reproductive freedom insofar as contraception is concerned, should now be extended further to include a right for a woman to decide whether and if she will terminate her pregnancy. Melissa Murray is a professor at NYU School of Law. This issue, this decision, remains one of the most divisive in American politics. Why? There are a number of reasons why I think Roe versus Wade has garnered so much controversy. Um, one is the idea of rooting this in the right to privacy. The right to privacy in 1973 was relatively new. It had only been announced um, seven years before in Griswold versus Connecticut. The right to privacy is not explicitly enumerated in the Constitution, and that was obviously an issue when Griswold was decided, it's still something of an issue when Roe versus Wade is decided in 1973. Um, it really isn't until the failed confirmation hearings of Robert Bork, um, who famously articulated that there was no right to privacy, that people seem to come around to the right of privacy actually existing. So now it seems fairly well settled. But then it actually was quite controversial. More importantly, the reason why I think um, Roe versus Wade remains controversial is this question of whether the court has actually gotten out too far ahead of the democratic process. Um, so one argument that folks have made is that when Roe versus Wade was decided, actually at the state level there was an ongoing robust debate about whether abortion laws should be liberalized and how if they should be they should be liberalized. And that was actually going on at the state level, and then the court sort of steps in and precipitously sort of sweeps all of that debate off the table by legalizing abortion across the nation, and it's quite sweeping. Reva Siegel and Linda Greenhouse, in their book, Before Roe versus Wade, actually dispute this narrative and show that while there was dialogue and debate happening at the state level, in fact, because of very thick lobbying efforts um, from the Catholic Church, for example, and other um, anti-abortion groups, most of those efforts had stymied, and um, although there was some debate, there were ne it never actually got to the point where legislatures were taking up the question and deciding how to reform or repeal abortion laws. So the court really did need to step in, as they did in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, for example, um, to solve a question that really was about the individual rights of um, women throughout the United States. The dissenting opinions by the two associate justices, William Rehnquist, who would go on to serve as chief justice appointed by President Reagan and Byron White, in their dissent, what were their arguments? So Justice White, um, Byron White, the Coloradan, um, is really concerned in his dissent that there's nothing in the language or history of the Constitution that would support a decision to legalize abortion, indeed to find a right to an abortion. And for him, this was simply the court um, creating or announcing a new right for pregnant women without any real authority to do so. And in his view, this is a kind of judicial overreaching. And so we hear conservatives say this quite a lot, this idea of judicial activism. And so for White, that was certainly the case. Rehnquist elaborates this point about judicial overreaching, but he really emphasizes the historical record. And he's very clear that when the 14th Amendment was ratified, there were actually numerous prohibitions on abortion on the books. And so his point is, 
If, in fact, abortion was criminally prescribed in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, it's hard to say that this is the kind of right, though unenumerated, that is sort of deep-seated in American history that ought to be recognized as a fundamental right. So, again, his dissent, um, and it's sort of a standard move that he makes in these due process, substantive due process cases, is to challenge the idea that the right in question is one that is deep-seated and deeply rooted in the American experience. As you look at the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh and the upcoming hearings that will take place into the U.S. Senate, on this specific issue, what questions do you think will be asked or need to be asked? Well, so the standard question that has been asked um, of justices, I guess from Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, forward, has been sort of to evade the question of abortion, although Ginsburg certainly talked about it forthrightly because of her own work as a women's rights advocate Um, I think we probably should have that kind of frank discussion about the abortion question, although it's unlikely that we will have it, as other confirmation battles have suggested. But one, does Judge Kavanaugh believe that Roe versus Wade is a valid and viable precedent? He has said in his writings and in his earlier confirmation hearing that um, Roe versus Wade is a settled precedent that he would follow if confirmed to the federal appellate court. I think we need to know if that continues, um, or does he think that it is a precedent that requires some modification or that could be distinguished in particular ways? Uh, I think we'd have to understand his views on how Roe versus Wade interacts with Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is a 1992 decision that revisited Roe versus Wade and upheld Roe's essential essence, but actually um, limits the right to abortion in significant ways by undermining some aspects of Roe. So I think that's important. I think we'd want to know his views on the court's most recent decision in 2016 in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, which also affirmed the right in Roe and gave more guidance as to what it would mean to burden that right. All of those, I think, are fair game. And certainly um, Judge Kavanaugh's views in a recent case from the D.C. Circuit concerning an an undocumented minor who sought an abortion should be fair game as well. Let me go back to the Casey decision. Uh, Governor Bob Casey, at the time, Democrat from Pennsylvania. His son is now in the U.S. Senate, also a Democrat representing the Keystone State. Specifically, what did the court decide? So in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, um, many people saw the death knell for Roe. It was widely expected that Planned Parenthood versus Casey, um, because of the changing composition of the court and because of a lot of backlash to Roe, would be the decision that would actually formally overrule Roe versus Wade. And surprisingly, it did not. Um, There, a plurality of the court and among the justices were Justice Souter, um, Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy. Um, None of these justices are now on the court as constituted. But those justices sort of formed a core that voted to uphold the essential aspect of Roe, that is the woman's right to terminate her pregnancy, but actually modified the holding of Roe in substantial ways. Um, As an initial matter, they struck down the trimester framework that had been established in Roe during um, after Roe. The trimester framework held that a woman had the right to terminate her pregnancy without any government interference in the first trimester. At the end of the first trimester, um, the state began to have an interest in protecting fetal life and could legislate um, in the second trimester to preserve maternal health, but could not prescribe abortion entirely. And it's only in the third trimester 
um, where the potential for fetal life, as well as concerns about the mother's health, health allows the state to actually prescribe abortion entirely. The court in Casey found that the trimester framework was unduly formalistic. It really didn't sort of keep pace with medical technology, and it was just put the court in the business of making medical decisions about when abortion was or wasn't safe. And so they struck down the trimester framework. Um, They also struck down the standard of review for legislation that restricts or regulates abortion. Um, In Roe, the right to an abortion was denominated a fundamental right, and that typically means it's subject to strict scrutiny, which means it's very hard for the government to oppose upon such a right unless it has a compelling interest in doing so, and the legislation that it uses to further that compelling interest is narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. In Casey, the court finds that strict scrutiny is not going to be the appropriate standard of review for reviewing abortion legislation or regulations, and instead they impose what is called the undue burden standard. And in the undue burden standard, um, basically um, what the court has to establish is whether or not the challenged regulation poses a substantial obstacle um, to a woman seeking an abortion, like whether it places a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion, whether it has the purpose or effect of doing so. And so it's a rigorous standard, but it's less rigorous than the strict scrutiny that was prescribed in Roe. So it does make it easier for the state to regulate and for those regulations to be constitutionally upheld. And Professor Murray, I want to go back to something you talked about earlier, the confirmation hearings of Justice Robert Bork. Of course, his nomination was scuttled by Democrats in the U.S. Senate back in 1987. Did his confirmation hearing process uh, change substantially how potential nominees answer questions regarding Roe v. Wade? Certainly. Um, Bork's big problem was that he answered a question about the right to privacy by saying there was no right to privacy. And um, that basically changed a lot of things. Seeing that example, um, seeing that, you know, Robert Bork basically got borked because he challenged this idea of a right to privacy, challenged Griswold versus Connecticut and certainly Roe versus Wade, really got himself into trouble and certainly cost him a, a seat on the Supreme Court, the seat that ultimately went to Anthony Kennedy. Now, candidates um, and the administrations who nominate them try to avoid the question entirely. Lots of candidates um, answer questions about whether or not they agree with settled precedent, including Griswold versus Connecticut and Roe versus Wade. And most um, sign on and say that, you know, Griswold is a settled precedent. There is a right to privacy. But very few of them actually engage the question of whether or not they believe that Roe was decided properly or that there is a right to an abortion and most simply say that they cannot answer um, or speak about decisions that they have not yet seen because they haven't gotten to the court yet, but that they likely will get to the court. What type of cases do you think potentially could come to the U.S. Supreme Court that would either overturn Roe v. Wade or, in the uh, the case of KCV Planned Parenthood, again, provide new or more restrictions for those who seek an abortion? I mean, I, I think it is entirely possible that there will be a host of legislation that um, seeks to regulate not only abortion, but those who provide abortion. So trap laws, targeted regulations of abortion providers have been um, proliferating throughout the country over the last five years. And there will certainly be more of those, and they will 
make their way through the court system. Some may make their way to the Supreme Court, as the trap laws in the Hellerstedt case did. Um, more recently, I think we're seeing um, some laws that seek to prohibit abortion entirely and, and far earlier in the gestation of the pregnancy um, than we've seen before. So I think Iowa has a six-week um, heartbeat law that prescribes abortion as soon as a heartbeat can be detected, usually at about six weeks. That might be a decision that um, certainly goes through the federal courts. It's already being challenged now that might make it to the Supreme Court. And that has the potential to certainly, if not overrule Roe entirely, to undermine it. It may be the case that we have more of an incremental effort to kind of chip away at Roe. Um, I think most recognize that because almost 65, more than 65 percent of Americans agree with the right to an abortion, agree that there is a right to an abortion, that um, dismantling that right wholesale in a single decision might on, might provoke some outrage among the public, that there might be a sort of long-term effort, as we've seen in other situations, to slowly chip away at these precedents and then eventually overrule them. And, and that's certainly something that happened this year in the unionization case. There was a 1977 precedent in favor of public sector unions. And over time, with two decisions of the court in the last five years, that decision got undermined. And then this year, the court finally overruled it. You were kind enough to uh, share your insights with C-SPAN's Landmark Cases series, which, by the way, is available on our website at cspan.org. But let me conclude with that point. Why was Roe v. Wade such a significant case? Why was it a landmark case for the U.S. Supreme Court? So this is a case um, that, I mean, it's interesting that it was a landmark case um, because in some ways it was very much in keeping with the times. When Roe was decided in 1973, there had been this long and ongoing discussion of abortion. Physicians had raised the issue of abortion. Population control scholars had raised the question of abortion um, with regard to the rising population of the, the United States and the world more generally. And then the women's rights movement came in and raised the question of abortion, not necessarily for population control, but for the idea that in order to be an equal partner in the public sphere, in employment, in, in the body politic, women had to be able to control their reproductive capacities. So it was very much top of mind. Um, when the case was decided, I mean, it was you know one of these sort of unusual decisions in that it was rooted in the right to privacy, you know, a right that had only been announced a few years earlier, so it expanded that right. It became part of what is known as the Griswold Privacy Revolution, and, and that certainly cements its status as a landmark case. But more than anything, I mean, it was a case that was deeply, deeply rooted in the experience that lots of women were having. Um, the question of back alley abortions, women self-inducing abortion and undertaking unsafe abortions was something that almost every woman had known of someone who had been in this situation and had to contend with laws that made it impossible to terminate a pregnancy. And so this is very much top of mind. Um, how has Roe endured and remained a landmark case? And I think the backlash to the decision, the controversy that it's incited, the rise of the pro-life movement, which really followed in Roe's wake, have all been part of what has kept this decision at the forefront of our minds and in, at the top of our discourse. Melissa Murray is a professor of law at NYU. She is joining us from Oakland, California. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me.
And to our listeners on C-SPAN Radio and C-SPAN's The Weekly, thanks for listening. You can get this podcast wherever you download your favorite podcast, also on the free C-SPAN Radio app.